Hello, welcome to Pep Talks, People Empowering People, where we interview everyday people telling their stories of not-so-everyday resiliency. We hope to inspire you get through your adversity after learning their stories. Pep Talks is brought to you by Mind Over Matter Books, children and adults books that allow you to learn skills to overcome your adversity so that you can live a more resilient life. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, I am here with Susie Reamer, who is a mother of two adult boys and recently wrote the book Vacuum in Squares, a memoir of how her twin sister and she survived living with an abusive father. Her bond with her identical twin is what she claims helped her get through the day-to-day struggles of living with such a difficult father. Let's find out more about what got Susie through those turbulent times. Hi, Susie, and welcome to Pep Talks. How are you today? Hi, Casey. I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And I love, love, love that uh, you are willing to be a guest on this podcast. Uh, We've gotten to know each other over the last few years through golf. And I know through your ties with the Greek um, (laughs) population. (laughs) um, I always called you, your twin and you, the Greeks, and neither of you are even Greek. No, we are not Greek. So um, our golf partner is Greek, who happens to be first cousins with the twins husband. So we've both been around the Greek families for 30 plus years. Gotcha. So I'm not I'm fine with it. You can call me the Greeks all day. (laughs) Well, I enjoyed your girls, um, Susie and her sister and her relatives were all a big highlight to my golf league. And I was grateful to have met them. We all, our paths all cross for a reason. And here we are today to talk about Susie's story. As I've mentioned before, everybody has a story. And even uh, people you think just have it great. You look at somebody like, wow, they've just got it they've got a great life. Look at them. And you don't know that behind um, that fabulous athletic body and great sense of humor and great social life, there was a story. So um, Susie, just tell us a little bit about yourself now. You have two boys and what else as far as family do you have? Uh, Well, I'm 57 years old and I have been a stay-at-home mother, more or less. I've dabbled in some part-time jobs over the years, but I've been home with both my children since I was 35. So my older son is 22 and my younger son is 19. And I've devoted a lot of my time to their care and upbringing, following them to their baseball games, getting them to music lessons and so forth. But you get to a point where they are self-sufficient with cars and in college, um, you have to sort of redefine the next third of your life. And so that's why I started a few years ago writing. And I started writing more for the therapy behind it, but realized that I had been putting together a story that actually might resonate with a lot of people and make sense and maybe help some people along the way. Like you said, you don't always know what people's stories are. 
And how well do you really know your friends? You really sometimes have no idea. And I know that some of my friends that I've known since high school did not know or were completely unaware that my sister and I and our older siblings had gone through some pretty heavy emotional abuse, which I've never been physically abused, so I can't compare the two, but it does stay with you um, when you're trying to define who you are and find your self-confidence and go out and live your life. So go ahead. Well, I I commend you for facing it and wanting to share it as well. It is certainly very therapeutic to, you know, one, be able to just come to terms with what happened in your childhood. It, it sounds, and you're going to share with us more, but it sounds like it was uh, pretty turbulent times, pretty unsteady and pretty scary. And to come to terms with it as an adult is difficult and people struggle with that for years. And then for you to take it an extra step and want to share that story, which I think is going to be so helpful to so many adults and kids who are experiencing it or have gone through any kind of abuse. And you mentioned that, you know, you can't compare your emotional abuse to anybody who's been through physical abuse, but you know, it doesn't matter. Scars are inside or outside. It's all abuse and it's awful. It's any kind of abuse is just awful. So I really commend you and appreciate you for what you are doing uh, to, to help yourself and to help others. Now, uh, the title of your book is called Vacuum in Squares. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that title and a little bit more about this book and when it's coming out? Well, the title Vacuum in Squares, I noodled around a little bit with the title, but that is an actual thing. And I don't want to give away too much of the story, but my father, who stayed home when we were children and ran his business out of the house, was never gone. So he had a particular way of doing everything, including vacuuming or cutting the grass. If I were to say to you the phrase, three quarters up, one quarter back, that doesn't mean anything to you. But when I start the lawnmower and start cutting the grass, it really, you know, it's almost post-traumatic where you go back and you realize your father had been standing there watching you cut the grass or run the vacuum, sweep, do the dishes, make a bed. So the title has to do with sort of his OCD in how he wanted to do things, but also because he used that to control our behavior. And it made everybody very uneasy. My mother could not relax in the kitchen and make dinner because he might come in there and tell her she was doing something wrong or Uh, He wanted her to do something in a particular way. So the vacuum in squares sort of encompasses the, it was maddening. I guess that's the best way to put it, that you just couldn't be left alone to get a job done, but he'd snatch the broom out of your hand and tell you for the hundredth time how to use it or run the vacuum. So it gets into, like I said, his, maybe his insecurities I'm not sure, or his quest to have his children and his wife do things in a manner that he considered was perfect. His way or the highway. 
Pretty much. And yeah, we lived in a world of don't do as I do, do as I say. So while he wanted you to do it a certain way, then he'd do it completely different. So I think that there was a part of his mannerisms and how he behaved that wanted you off center when you're in the house and not quite sure how to behave. Well, you are walking on eggshells. You're living with constant anxiety. It's constant. You come home and your, your relief, like so many, was probably when you were at school and involved and engrossed in your sports because you weren't around him. But when you came home, what an anxiety trip, what an eggshell. You did not know what you were going to come into and what kind of demands he was going to put on you at any Never. It's an awesome- never. My poor mother never learned to drive. So she didn't have a way out of there. Like I said, he ran his business from home. So he was never gone. We'd come home from school in elementary school and he was there when we were eating lunch. Oh my gosh. Get yeah, away from it, it went, no, it went on until he passed away when we were 52, 52. Oh my God. My twin sister and me were 52 when he died. Only five years ago. So you lived yeah. 52 years of your life walking on eggshells anytime you're around him. And, and oftentimes, if you know you and or the listener knows anything about some living with some people with various mental health disorders, a lot of times you find people with like borderline personality disorder. That's exactly what he had. They put they put onto you what they fear or what they're incompetent in or what they're guilty of. So if they're screwing up the finances, they're blaming somebody else in the house for spending too much. If they're having an affair, they're blaming the spouse for having the affair. So they project onto others their own insecurities or their own guilt. And so always kids live. He did it all the time. Sure. I mean what I remember a few times and and Cindy will tell you as well that he showed us a foreclosure notice and would tell us, I don't know how we're going to eat. We're going to have to give away your dogs because I can't feed them. You know, the anxiety that creates in a young child going to sleep at night. And you have to understand we lived in a very affluent neighborhood. We lived in a 5,000 square foot house. I was surrounded by friends who had maids. They were members of country clubs and we could never let our friends know what was going on. First of all, because we were terrified to lose them and their homes became our sanctuaries. We stayed gone as much as we could. And our friends were very generous, although they don't know the effect it had. They will when they read the book, but we were grateful for that because it's such a mind, mind trip. Like he did it all the time. You know, even until my mother was almost dead and she was 85, so she's been gone for 10 years, he literally had her convinced that her being in an assisted living facility was going to starve him to death because they didn't have the money for both, which is absolutely ridiculous. Awful. God, my heart breaks for her. My heart breaks for her. And my mother, yeah, she was an angel. And when I tell everybody she was Mrs. Claus, I'm not joking. Oh. So, and you get, I'm going to take uh, you back to that uh, rich, affluent neighborhood because I've often spoke, mm-hmm. spoken about this to children. They 
they point to kids and think every they have something because they have a bigger home. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a house, not a home. It's the people that make it the home. And there's so much that kids just don't realize is going on behind those closed doors. That there are people that live in maybe really broke, what looks like broken down, disheveled houses or apartments mm-hmm. that have a whole lot more love going on in those big 5,000, 10,000 square foot homes in those affluent areas. And we just, you, you don't know. You think that the abuse is going on in these bad neighborhoods. It's not. It's, it's everywhere. I could tell you that I have a good friend that Cindy and I have known since elementary school. And we started talking about these stories. And she said, all I ever wanted to be was you and your sister. And a lot of people have said that because we were athletic. We were cheerleaders. We had really long, pretty hair. We lived in a big house. We were honor students, right? So we put out this image to the world. And she lived in a duplex with her mother who was divorced and was, I believe, an alcoholic. And she used to say, God, I just wanted to be you and your sister. When I can tell you that my sister and I literally said to her, I would have given anything to live in a duplex with my mother alone. No kidding. So what a strong message you're sharing here. And it's so important for people to realize, you know, even in the community I live in, I have had the honor of meeting some wonderful ladies who have broken down and told me their stories just in the short time that I've been here. And it's just amazing that once again, I'm talking to people in 5,000 square feet homes that look like they've got the world in one hand uh-huh. and that's not the case and their stories are all different than yours but still they everybody has some some sort of re- adversity everybody has a struggle everybody has challenges you can't get out of life with it without it but it's how we choose to deal with it that makes us the strong people and and so you your sister Cindy and you just like so many kids in abusive homes put yourself, involve yourself in school. You know, you don't want to tick off the abusive parents with any kind of poor grades or, you know, you you want to be involved after school every day so you don't have to go home. Those are always the students that worry me the most. Not the kids that are acting up. We know they have a pretty bad story. It's the kids like you as a counselor that really scare me because there's no reason for me to be helping you. Like no counselor or teacher knew your story. So when they read your book, Susie, they're going to be like, these girls, they're the most popular girls. They were so, they had this beautiful home. They had this beautiful family. You know, I'm sure when you were out, maybe you went to church as a family or wherever, maybe with the other siblings, you guys probably spoke like, yeah, we're this together family. We have a mom and dad who are still married. Wow. Right. You know, people think, you know. That's great. Well, you you run into that. My father, if and I know you understand people who have this narcissistic personality disorder, like the whole cluster B. And his physician finally said to my sister and me at 92 that he's like, I hope you understand your father has a major personality disorder. I said, Oh, no kidding. You know, so it took it took Cindy and me until we were about 50 to label him a sociopath. And I've done a lot of reading because I'm trying to understand what I'm dealing with. Like, why would a father speak to his daughters the way he spoke to us? Never really, never a hug, never I love you, 
never I'm proud of you, never your good mothers, your good daughters. I got none of it and neither did she. And so there's a part of you, you know, that is constantly seeking that affirmation. And from this, this one human being, I just wanted to hear that thing. And I never heard it. I, I didn't hear it. So you can't get too hung up on that. There's a lot of messages in the book for everybody of all ages that you can't, to the best you can do, you can't let it define you. Right. You know, I swore, I swore on my eyesight, I would not pass this on to my own children. And I'm sure I've passed on some of it, but I was always going to err on my mother's side. If I thought, what should I do? You know, if your kid's doing this or, you know, they constantly want to come sleep with you in the middle of the night or whatever those things are, you think you really need to sort of, you know, toughen your kid up. I always erred on what my mother would do, which was make us food in the middle of the night. And she walked our lunch down to the pool and she would actually lie for me and Cindy and then our one older sister and maybe alter a bad grade from a a D to a B because she knew it was not going to be life changing in terms of where we would end up in life, but it would My older sister got grounded for six weeks because he found a spelling error in uh, some report that she wrote. So my mother would have laid herself on a bed of nails to protect us from whatever he was going to do. Wow. And God bless your mother. It breaks my heart to know. And I'm sure during their older years, I mean, he died just five years ago at 92. Mm -hmm. I'm sure back in your head. No, he was almost 95, Casey. He would be in June. He'd be 101. Oh, gotcha. Okay. But I'm sure at some point you were hoping and and not out of unkindness, but hoping that maybe your mom could have some peaceful years. I wanted him to die first, if I'm being honest. And I, and there's nothing wrong with, I wanted, I wanted her to have peace and quiet and, she just, it, she wasn't going to get it. Wow. So for whatever reason, whatever belief system you have, whether you think God's at work, whether it's fate, whether it's karma, there is a reason that things happen. And I believe that my father needed to be here on this planet without her. He just needed to be alone. And she was constantly his savior. How she stayed married to him for 50 years, I have no clue. Fear. Fair. I'm sure For he sure. threatened her of finances and kids, and that's what they do. They manipulate the heck out of the out of the spouses and kids. And my my heart breaks for her. And I just, you know, I, I guess you just have to believe that she is at peace, and you know, left before him and was put put in a peaceful oh place. Her life before she met my father was she had more heartache and grief by the time she was thirty three. Then, because she had alcoholics for parents, they all died. Her in-laws, her parents, her stepmother, I think her father committed suicide. Oh, my goodness. And she was taking care of these people until they died. And at 33, her first husband, which was the father of my half-siblings, so my two older brothers and my older sister, he she he fell off a cliff down in the Metro parks Oh my gosh. and died instantly. And my mother was a widow at 33 oh with my gosh. kids that were two and 10 and 
12 or something like that. It was really the story. It's in the book. It was kind of insane. So when you look at a woman who didn't have a high school education, wasn't very sophisticated, but had a heart of gold, and then she ends up marrying mine and Cindy's father. God bless. She went from one tragedy to another. uh, You know, but she said, had she not done that, then Cindy and I wouldn't be here. And we were really her blessing because without the two of us, we looked after her until the day she died. So there's a reason that things happen because had she not met him, I wouldn't be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm thankful for that. And I, I hear that and I believe that. And you know, not to sound cliche, but things do happen for a reason. And she brought two beautiful girls into this world and thankfully had you, you know, you guys supported each other and probably had a lot of secrets between the three of you and maybe even your older siblings while living with this man. I mean, you have to hide a lot from this person. You're walking on eggshells and everybody knows that any little, little flaw is going to make him crack. And you got to keep trying to keep that peace. And what a, awful way to have to live and yet so many people live it and it just it's exhausting and my advice is if you can find a way out find a way out there's one in 25 people which is four percent of the population are full-blown sociopaths they are the people out there that are trying to ruin your career and steal your job they're trying to wreck your marriage They are needy, charming, manipulative, and one thing they're going for is pity. And when you start feeling sorry for them and you keep them in your life, they will drain you. And that's what he did to my mother. She felt sorry for him. And she could never get away from that. And they lack all those feelings that come naturally to people like you and me. They lack compassion. They really lack kindness. They lack empathy. And they fake it. So when you're seeing that in somebody that's that sick, they've just learned how to behave. Right. That's all. And they lack integrity, most of all. And you, I mean, I live across the street from this. I, I've got this. This is what I've been battling for the last Yes, year. I know. So, you know it's, it's costing me like $4,400 roughly because of the lie. Yeah. The pity and she's the victim. Um, right. You know, this, and it's so frustrating because there's, in my professional opinion, there's no real cure for this. I mean, you can go, there is absolutely no cure. You can't medicate that. You can't. Nope. Um, you can do years and years and years of therapy to un. I don't even know how you untrain the brain to think so irrationally. It's it's an irrational thought process, and I don't know if that can ever be helped. But you can, you can't. I've done a lot of reading on this, and when you meet somebody that gives you that vibe, and you think that's what they're about, you should run. Yep. You should run. And I could not, had it not been for my mother, I would have run. I, I, I started a blog sort of on the backstories of this book. And I touched on one blog about whether you should stay or you should fly. And I encourage my children to fly. I don't want them to watch me get old. I don't want to watch them be married. Go live your life. I will find you. And I don't want you to worry about me. But my sister and I could not leave our mother. She already had endured enough out of him that I knew that if I didn't stay close by, he would just have emotionally wrecked her life. He already did it, but she needed her daughters. You were her hope. To take- you were the only hope she had. You were what she was living so, for. Yeah. yeah, so we stayed in the middle of their marriage, whether I should have been in the middle of it or not, I, we were we were in the middle of it. 
and it was exhausting. I, I'm sure it was. I mean, everybody, and there's no right answer on that one because you're know, guilty as heck had you not stuck around and, you know, you were exhausted and had to endure a lot more abuse by sticking around. But in my opinion, I think you did the right thing. And I would never have left a parent uh, with another parent under those circumstances either. And and I get why your mother stuck around. And it, I think things are different now. I think women are getting bolder and more confident and more independent. And, and mm-hmm. women are working. So they have their own incomes now. And they're not as controlled financially as what took place you know, in our parents' generations and, and religions kind of taken a, a change on the whole divorce as well. They don't want you, yep. priests don't want you staying in a marriage that's abusive. They don't condone that. You don't stay till death do I die. If somebody is, abusive. Right. you get out Right, and they support that. Out. So I am hoping that our generation and the generations to come, you know, first of all, you know, make good choices when they find their significant other. But by God, if you're in an abusive relationship, get out. It's not going to change. And I did. It's not going to change. They're not going to change. They lie and manipulate. Sure they do. They're not going to change. Only you can change by getting out. Well, Cindy likes to sort of make that joke that, you know, I've been married three times. So I thought the first two times I chose wisely. I did. And then some switch gets flipped. And I think the reason I did not, I probably could have tried a little harder to stay married, but I think I watched my mother and I'm like, I'm not fixing this. I don't want to fix you. You know, I completely if, get it. Yep. I, like, I just was like, I'm not doing this. So, you know, you think you chose wisely. I thought I picked an outstanding man to be the father of my children. And although they are, fabulous and smart and handsome. You know, I wasn't going to make him do the thing. And I thought for a second, I think I might've married my father on that one. Oh I know. So you sort of see your life and I go, you know what? I got a college degree. I can work. I'm not doing this. I'm out. And you, I'm out. out. I literally woke up one day and said, my switch just got flipped. Get out. Good for you. And I've been with my current husband now for 15 years. And he's been an outstanding stepfather and a really good example for my boys. Every marriage goes through their hiccups, but every, you know, you can hope that everybody gets back on track, which we did. Good for you. You know, good for you. Life is stressful. Right. But I agree. I mean, I know marriage is work and I'm not saying to bail out the second it becomes Mm -hmm. work, but you know, there's a certain level where if things cannot change for the better and it's becoming the stress is overwhelming you. It's affecting you as a parent. It's affecting you in your work life. It affects you all, all throughout. And, and if you just can't come to amends and things just can't work out for the best, you don't stay in it miserable. Kids pick up on that. Well, oh, for sure they do. And you don't want to be the only one in the marriage doing all the heavy lifting. Right. Absolutely. You know, you can't keep compromising your values and what you believe in and, thinking that you're going to fix whatever this thing is that was broken in your spouse. Right, right. And while you continue to feel less and less valuable and important and valued in life, you know, it just beats you down. And there's a certain point where women and men in these kinds of relationships, I hope can learn from this 
to stand up for what's right and what's best. And I have friends that I have talked to at length who are have been in marriages. They don't know any differently, but they they don't know how to be in a functional relationship because their parents weren't in functional relationships and they repeated the the relationship process. They've repeated this uh, behavior and now they're in abusive marriages and unwell marriages and, and they're so stressed. It's like, you, it doesn't have to be that way. There's a whole other way to be. And now your children, you're creating th- third generation. Now your kids have only learned how to be abusive to one another. So sure. And how many mm-hmm. parents say, oh, we're staying together for the children? Oh, so they can learn it's, not to love and be hurt. Yeah, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. And part of it, I have to say, I think it's a cop out for a lot of people because it's convenient. They don't want to face their friends since they've been lying for years that trying to put that face out to the world that says, wow, we're really happy. We take all these cool family trips and look at us in our cool pictures and, you know, we're perfect. And they, they have this lie going that they've convinced themselves is true. So how do all of a sudden you wake up knowing you've been carrying this baggage and lying going, yeah, you know what? No, it's not been like that. It's not been good for 15 years. And what a relief it is when you finally have the courage to do that, because you find that all these other neighbors in the 5,000 square foot houses and all these other people you work with are also struggling. When you share yep. your story, if it's abuse, if it's, you know, having a, a child on, on, you know, drug addicted, whatever it is, just meeting people throughout my life, you know, once people share that story, you just see the shoulders relax, you feel their face relax. And it's like, oh my God, I'm not crazy. I'm okay. You know, I, I'm, I'm not the bad person here and it's okay to have done this. It's okay to have endured done this. Yeah, for 15 years. You're in an abusive relationship. That doesn't make you weak. We've all, we've, no, you know, and here's it. the thing too, people, you have to hope that when you go through life with this other person, you're taking people from two different backgrounds, two different family dynamics, and you expect them now to live in this house. And now every day be on the same page So you have to hope that you're moving through this relationship. You know, maybe the wife pulls ahead a little bit, then the husband pulls a little bit, but you can't have one spouse completely pull forward and leave the other one behind and hope that you're ever going to get back to this middle ground. Right. right? You have to meet at the 50 yard line. You can't play ball without it. No. And it's okay to say, listen, whatever we were about 15, 20 years ago, we're not about today. Landslide. You know? change. Yeah. It's right. You just have to just, but that's, that's a very personal decision. And I'm not an advocate for divorce, although I've done it twice, but you have to recognize, I I literally with both those other husbands, there was a moment where I saw my life flash before my eyes and not even physically, there was a little of the, and I mean, you know, threatening physical violence, but you look at that and in my gut, I was like, oh my God, if I don't get out of this, I'm going to ruin my kids and I'm going to be my mother. Right. And I'm not going to do it. Good for I'm you sorry. for breaking the cycle. That's the hardest thing. Kids and adults don't know how to break that cycle. They don't know any differently. And for you to have the wherewithal to realize this is not okay. This is not okay. I'm not going to repeat yeah. this rather than this is all I know. I guess this is how it's supposed to be. And you know, good for you for 
you're making it right by the third marriage. I know, no, right? Hey, three's a charm. You you made it right. You know how many people are still in that first marriage? And again, I'm not condoning divorce either. I'm not telling every woman to run out on their husband or every man to run out on their wives. Right. But there comes a certain point where if it's, if it's weighing down on you because you're putting so much time and effort into a relationship that the other person is just not responding to, and this person's not healthy for you emotionally, mentally, physically, uh, and you're sleeping in two different bedrooms and you just, oh, you know, yeah, all know. of that, it's the gig is up. The gig is up. Well, when you look at it, um, like I said, I felt especially with the second husband, my boy's father, that I was in this perpetual cycle of throwing up my resume daily and looking for my little gold star. You know, when he said I'd never showed him enough gratitude, I had a nice career. I had an office with a secretary. I got to travel and go on lunches and I did a 180. His life didn't do a 180. I walked away from that and I was all of a sudden had this job seven days a week to raise this mold of, you know, this human being into something important and relevant. And the pressure I put on myself, just like I want to be a good golfer or a good athlete or a good friend, I had that same pressure to raise two boys that I could put out into the world and be proud of that. Like here's two decent human beings world. I did my job. You did that. So you, you, you have to recognize that it doesn't matter that if you make that, you know, make the bed a little straighter tomorrow, or you've cut the grass before he gets home from work. So he doesn't have to, or he's never waiting for clean laundry. You can keep moving. It's a moving target. And there are certain spouses that don't react to that. They'll never, they'll just keep moving the bar on you. So if you find yourself trying to perform like a trained circus animal and you're still feeling undervalued, unloved, unappreciated, it's time to go. It is. And it's not going to change. They always promise to change. It doesn't yep. change. You know, if it happens to you once, shame on you. If it happens to you twice, right? You know, shame, shame on, on me. Shame on me. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Right. So, um, well, I I appreciate your input and your you have so much to share and teach other women and you know i appreciate your level of expertise and i appreciate how you know you are you were always a, a fabulous athlete and you've always persevered and pushed yourself to the nth degree and i love that about you and you're still doing that and i love that about you you if anybody were to meet you they would not know that you're 57 years old because she looks amazing her twin and she they're identical you're very sweet they mm-hmm. i couldn't believe that they were even older than me i thought you girls were way younger <laughs> than me when i met you i couldn't believe it so I, I love that about you. You're beautiful inside and outside. And and I love your sense of humor also. You know, we've we haven't really tapped into that yet, but I know that you have always been very funny when since I've met you and I, I know you value humor and, and you have to laugh through some of this, you know, because what do they say? If I don't laugh, I'm gonna cry. Right. And I've done plenty of both, but it's part of my personality. And I've meant to weave in a lot of humor, although a lot of it's dark, into this book. 
because I don't want the message is that sometimes life serves you up this enormous, horrible sandwich that you have to eat and you're going to eat it, but you need to eat it with dignity because it's never going away. So life constantly is putting up disappointments and obstacles. And did I get the father I, I wanted? Not exactly. He wasn't a doting, loving father. There is a lot about him that because of him, I am who I am. You know, I don't, I speak clearly. I communicate well. I can cut the grass like nobody's business. I have perfect posture. So you'll get into that in the book. I mean, it just, it goes beyond the whole vacuum and squares. So he did have some dark secrets of his own, which when Sydney and I discovered some of these things, it made his behavior even that more egregious to me. Like, you're so hard on the rest of us to be perfect and all these things that we do, yet you've got this little ditty. Which is very typical of borderline personality disorder. That's exactly uh-huh. what they do. Oh, they're hypocrites. Oh, absolutely. Oh that's the that's the key to them. And and, and uh-huh. I tell this to, you know, people in problematic marriages, you know, if your husband's pointing the finger at you for having an affair or for um causing the family to be financially strained, I assure mm-hmm. you they're the one doing it. They are the one having the affair. They're the one that's spending or gambling money. If they're blaming you for being the drunk, they're out drinking, you know, when they shouldn't be. So it's well, I had a friend tell me once that if we're pointing one finger, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. So be careful what you're accusing people of. You know, that's the whole glass houses thing. Watch how many rocks you're lobbing right. at others. Right. Watch it. You know, uh, I'm not a perfect parent. Obviously, you know, I'm not a perfect wife who is. Right. You know, I, I take my I'm I take my role in two failed marriages, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, when you recognize that it's not worth sticking around because this is literally oil and water, fire and gasoline, who's that good for? Right. Nobody. And not the kids. Nobody. And, and what you did Nobody. was a better sacrifice for the kids. When so many people say we're staying together because of the kids. No, nope. no, you're hurting the children, taking them out mm-hmm. and showing independence and showing uh, the ability to stand up for yourself and do the right thing and to to start from ground zero again. I mean, oftentimes when people separate and divorce, you, you both, you lost that 5,000 square foot home. You know, you're down, sure at, you're living in a little apartment with the two kids and hoping for, you know, running water as you're trying to balance mothering them and going back to work after years. And, you know, it, it's, but boy, the lesson you teach those kids of how to start from the beginning again, to just start over and, and to sacrifice those things that didn't mean squat, all that oh, big house didn't. and all that stuff. Mm-mm. The peace under a little apartment wind, uh, roof is so much more valuable than running and hiding in a huge house from that abusive parent or having to listen to the parents bicker. It's not worth it. Life's too short. No, when you start fighting in front of your children, you change who they are. Absolutely. And how are they supposed that, to learn how to I act? think that might be a Dr. Phil quote. I should give him credit for that. True. Sounds like him. You know, I think it sounds like Dr. Phil, but it's it's true. I mean, it, we're all human beings at the end of the day. And I think the message from the book is that, you know, you you have to deal with what life puts in front of you. And it's all meant to happen for a reason. You know, I, I tell people, um, I, I mentioned in my blog at one point that, 
if you and I are sitting here having this conversation, every decision you and I have made prior to this has put us together at this moment. So you can go back 20 years, 30 years, all these decisions you've made. And some of them, the outcome's not great, but really embrace the ones that are good. Like I've made a ton of new friends, right? Here we are. And the message is you can find a silver lining in almost everything. You can, you can try. So for your kids who are struggling, who don't have um, a father at home, for example, and their mother is trying to work two jobs. I would have rather had my mother do that and help her at 16 than deal with the oppression that we were dealing with in that house. I would have rather had that. So you're right. There's, and yet because of that abuse, you became such an independent driven woman. So that instead of, you know, coming out of it with all these thinking of all these obstacles, you really, made a lot of opportunity for yourselves. Your sister and you were star athletes, still hard great athletes. You know, you still have having surgeries every year on all their body parts yeah. from all their athleticism. But you yep. probably, I'm guessing, of course, we'll never know, but you probably would not have excelled to the level that you did in in your athletics. And you probably would not have stood up for yourself in that first relationship no. had you not gone through that. So it's, you know, I like to look at life like, um, finding the opportunities out of out of this wrecked marriage, you know? Well, and the things that we perceive as bad might not be really that bad. No. You know, you when you're going through it, you've been through some really tough heartache and you start questioning, why me? Why now? Well, why not you? Right. Why not now? Yeah. Why somebody else? It's your turn. Something good is so, going to come out of it. Everything I've And it always, it always does. Yeah. So the book is... Um, heartfelt and there's sad stuff in there and there's very funny stuff in there. And I meant for you to, I I want you to take you through sort of all those reins of emotions. You'll read it and you'll be frustrated for me, frustrated for my mother. You know, you'll be thinking, why didn't she do this or say that? But it's, well, and I wrote it in the short story format. I didn't know how to string together this story, which is insane by starting from the time I was two years old and try to make this chronological story out of this. So I started writing down, okay, well, we had all these dogs growing up and it was crazy. Like I'm talking four or five St. Bernard German shepherd sized dogs. Oh my God. Thank God you had a 5,000 square foot home. (laughs) They, they wrecked the backyard. I can't tell you they ate bushes. They were destructive. So there's a chapter about, dogs and me getting mauled by one of his dogs and the outcome of all of that. And so that chapter, for example, so all, I don't want to wreck it, but I'll just give you one example because all the chapters are named something very strange and you're not going to know what leftover pancakes means until you read the chapter. 48, 48 million minutes, barefoot in the grass, uh, marbles in my mouth. Wow. They, they're all very, they all, they all mean they something. They intrigue you, so, to, they intrigue the reader. Yes. They want to read, like, what does yes. this mean? You'll get the hang of it after the first couple of chapters where you're like, oh God, what is she going to say to me now? Yeah, what did he make you know, me this time? What, what, does it, what does that mean? So 
uh, the chapter could be six pages or it could be 20. I love it. I think the, the longest chapter was about the dogs because it just goes on and on. Can't make this I can make, up. <laughs> no, I can't make it up. So, but this is when I talk about the crazy stuff that was going on in my house, you know, you're talking about dog fights that were being broken up with metal bars and hoses. Oh my God. I can't even imagine what the neighbors thought. So it's just a whole bunch of crazy. So I decided to write it in short story that way, instead of trying to, I, there, I just didn't think I was creative enough that I could pull this together and start out telling the story from the time I was two or four, whenever I start remembering stuff to the time that he died. No need to. So, no, I love no. that format. I think it's, it's brilliant. It kind of is like Augustine Burroughs. If you ever read him and. Oh, Augustine Burroughs. Yeah. Someone said you sound like yeah. Augustine Burroughs yeah. running with scissors. Running with scissors. Yeah. That's a good yeah. one that reminded me of. And I, yeah, I can, I, I love that. I think, so I wanted to tell us, how we can get a hold of Vacuum in Squares by Susie Reamer. Tell us uh, what the website will be and the timeline. Well, so I have a Facebook page. So you can um, go to Vacuum in Squares. That's the Facebook page. And you'll see my picture there. It's a black and white picture. And you can like the page and I can invite you to join that. So I'm going to start dropping little hints. You know, I think I put a picture of my father there and tell little stories there, but that's where I will start talking about events coming up and book signings. Now with this COVID-19, it sort of messed up my plans a little bit for book launch and I can still do small book parties, you know, under 10 people and, you know, whatever people's comfort zone is. But there's also a blog. If you type in Susie Reamer, and it's R-E-M as in Mary, E-R. S-U-Z-I-E. S-U-Z-Y. S-U-Z-Y. R-E-M-E-R. Okay. Dot WordPress dot com. Okay. And my blog will pop up. So weekly, I'm trying to drop in a 500 or so word blog that is like a mini backstory to the book. Awesome. And this is all in the written notes for this podcast as well, listeners. So we have a Facebook page, Vacuum in Squares, and we have a blog, Susie Reamer, S-U-Z-Y-R-E-M-E-R at wordpress.com. And and Susie, I appreciate you sharing this story and, you know, such good input and advice coming from somebody who knows, who's been through so much. I appreciate you. And I look forward to reading this book. My gosh. Uh, Wait till you see the book cover. You're going to lose your mind. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I look forward to it. I thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we say goodbye? No, I would like to say to the listeners out there, don't don't be embarrassed by your story because it's your life and it's your story. You know, I hid from this for a little while and then I started telling it and, and the response was, it was a, it was a good response. People are like, just like you, good for you, put it out there. And this is who I am. This is where I come from. This is who my father was. And this is who my mother was. I mean, their marriage doesn't have to define me. My father's bad habits and bad behavior don't define me. I had to get to that point. And if you're wondering if I've ever had couch time with a therapist, the answer is no. 
And I think the reason, I think the reason that I didn't go down that road is that Cindy and I are three minutes apart and we had this built in sounding board all the time. So if we were, there was never whether or not we were afraid to go up to bed alone, like our older sister had to do because we didn't have to. We walked to school together. We walked home together. We were in gymnastics together. We came home from cheerleading together. We were on the same baseball teams. I mean, we golfed together. We're on the same bowling team. So we're always together. We have each two boys who are all about the same age. We live a quarter of a mile from each other. So I have this built-in support um, system. Sure. And I have fabulous friends who have heard many of these stories, but I think that that's how Cindy and I survived it. She talked to a therapist once about some of these stories and the guy just sat there. He's, he's like, I know you're not lying about this stuff, but I have to tell you that you and your sister are relatively normal for what you've been through. Sure. And I really have to attribute to that, that to having a twin and never having to be alone. Right, right. Ever. That, that's what made you resilient, that strong love bond. And I and I get that. My sisters and I were together, uh, the four of us and two our twins, throughout my mother's illness right. for eight years. And we bounced mm-hmm. off. And when one was happy, the other was distant, the other was angry, the other was crying. You know, right. like you, right. you, and, and you don't judge but you at least have somebody to validate your feelings. Like, oh, I get why you're angry today. I was angry yesterday. Sure. And and rather than going through this, like, am I crazy? Am I overreacting? You just have somebody to validate everything you've been through. That's that's wonderful. And that's the huge piece of resiliency is to have that, that, that connection with somebody, just one person to help you get through those troubling times. And, you know, and you had that sense of humor as well. And, you know, you've got your, relaxing um, skills of all the athleticism, all the athletics you got involved in. You really are a beacon of resiliency through all the tools that you used and had um, proving once again, that these are what it takes to get through adversity. So I commend. Well, this is life. This is not a practice for something else. I mean, this is, you've got to deal with that boss that you don't like. You've got to deal with, you know, I, I tell my kids all the time, friends and stuff. They're, they're like blue jeans. Okay. So you, you go out, you find the best pair of blue jeans. They fit you perfectly. You're never going to take them off. You're going to spend every day with these pants, right? These are these friends, right? And then all of a sudden something doesn't fit right. They've got a hole in them. They've gotten too tight, whatever it is. And you have to get rid of them. I don't care if that's a spouse. I don't care if that's a toxic friend who's trying to wreck your life. I don't care if it's a job you hate. It's up to you to make that change and decide you want something better because that friend that worked for you or that husband or that wife 10 years ago, and it's not working today, that's okay. You don't have to wish them anything bad. You don't have to do anything, but it's not fitting where you're going or what you're doing. Get rid of it. Right. I agree. I agree. No, get rid of it. It's not healthy. Mm-mm. Move on. It's a big, oh, heck it's no. a big universe. We can, you can move away. You can step away mm-hmm. and not have that in your life. And I, I agree. I agree. And I, and I love that earlier you had said that, you know, life serves you an awful sandwich. You eat it with dignity. 
Well, I, I use a different term with starts yeah, so, with an S. So do I. And it's funny because mine is always, <laughs> your life serves you the S sandwich. You still can enjoy dessert. And so, oh, true. You know, and mm-hmm. so I actually had made an entire S sandwich a PowerPoint <laughs> that I shared with high schoolers years ago. And it was all about this awful sandwich. It was Dagwood, you know, icon, right. cartoon uh-huh. eating the sandwich. Like it's still, but you can still be happy, but you can still be outgoing. You can still have friends. And this a guy eating this awful sandwich throughout the video, I thought it was hilarious, but it's true. But it's true. You're not getting away from it. Everybody's got to go through it. You, whatever it is, Whatever it is, you, there's nothing special about you. Right. Life's coming for yeah. you, and this is not a dress rehearsal. No, you're not getting out of it without adversity, so be prepared. No. You have Mm-mm. the skills. Have the people. Yep. Have your squad. Have your coping mechanisms. I mean, take a walk. Yep. Go to the gym. Get on your bike. Play a musical instrument. Go, journal. Go to, an, go to an art class. You have to have something that distracts you from that thing that you just need to set aside for a little bit. Yeah. You know, and it empowers you too. like, wow, hey, I'm pretty good at art. It's a good distraction, right. but I'm good at this. And I feel valued and I feel good in this art community or this athletic community. So there's so many benefits of just getting involved into something to help you, you know. And it's not drugs and alcohol. Right. True that. True that. Yes. Right. Right. A little alcohol. Let's be honest here. <laughs> I got to have a drink when I go, you know. I'm allowed. Oh, well, I hope to see you on the golf course soon. One of these Tuesdays. It- I don't know. Tomorrow, I don't think we're going to do it. Oh, my gosh. Well, one of these days, we will be out there together. We'll get out there. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Susie Reamer, from author of Vacuum in Squares. Look for her at Facebook, Vacuum in Squares, or the blog, suzyreamer.wordpress.com. Susie, I appreciate your time and your sure. plethora of input and advice. <laughs> You have an awesome And the day. book should be, I think the book should be available on Amazon. Very good. Probably, I would say July 1st is a safe bet you can probably find it. So I appreciate anybody who buys the book. And if you want to reach out to me, Casey gave you those two places you can And go. I will post all this um, as well when the book comes out. It'll be all over my Facebook. So thank you, Susie. Appreciate Thanks. your time. Have a good one. You're welcome. Today, we learned a lot from our friend Susie Reamer. If you are in an abusive relationship and can find a way out, get out. Deal with what is put in front of you and believe there will be a silver lining in your experiences. Don't be embarrassed by your story. It made you the wonderful person you are today. Your parents' behaviors don't define you. Individuals with borderline personality disorder Project onto others their own insecurities and wrongdoings. You cannot fix or change their behavior. Have your coping mechanisms and your support person or people to help you get through difficult relationships. Today's gratitude is when life serves you up an awful sandwich, eat it with dignity. Well, that's it for today's interview. We hope our guests helped you overcome some of your adversity and learn some new resiliency skills to help you to live a more fulfilled life. Keep on dancing and don't stop believing.